This is A Drink With A Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Seth Haynes. Seth, what you drinking today? I went through the effort, the trouble, <laughs> as it were, to walk downstairs and uh, get me a uh, a little a little skinny latte with an extra <laughs> shot because I was up till midnight last night. That's a whole other story. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I actually went through the trouble of going downstairs and getting good coffee, and I have not had a sip until just now. Um, because I was waiting to share this moment, this moment with you. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. We get to participate. I'm trying to make sound effects for the. Everyone listeners. loves mouth sounds and podcasts. Yeah. That is delightful. <laughs> it was Good. delight. It's a truly delightful <laughs> skinny latte. I wish all of you were here to share it with me. I'm so glad. Well, maybe if we had our own. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe you do have your own. What are you drinking today? I am continuing my um, trend of drinking Kyle's kombucha, and it's getting better. And I say that as a compliment because last week's was pretty good. This is a mojito kombucha, meaning it's oh. lime and mint flavored, and it is lime and really mint good. Flavored. Like hmm. Kyle's getting good at this. Like it's impressive. It, he's okay. funny. He's like a mad scientist. He's got all these bottles and jars around the kitchen. Um, and just talks about kombucha a lot now to where it's, it's almost like the kids are starting to smirk whenever he brings it up, mm. but he's really good at it. So I'm glad he's found a hobby that we can all benefit from. So what's yeah. the, uh, what's the secret to good kombucha? We are going to have to have him on to talk about it. Cause I don't know other than he has mentioned, I mean, you have to have enough sugar because the bacteria, I don't know. Is it bacteria? I think it is. Eats the sugar. And so mm. if you don't have enough, then something happens and it tastes sour, but it's not like the sugar then makes it sweet. I don't get it. Um, and also, then just also the just thought of drinking, the thought of drinking bacteria. I mean, really? I know, but it's good bacteria. It's good for you. So oh, it, yeah. it's a All weird right. thought, I realize. Um, well, and actually you filter out the goo. So I, I don't know. I don't know how it works. Clearly I need an expert on here to talk, aka Kyle. So mm. anyway... Mm. Yeah, well, it's good stuff. Have you ever have you ever accidentally swallowed part of the goo? The mother? Mm, yeah, it's gross. It feels like um an oyster, like the slimy thing. I, it, it kind of reminds me of how it might feel to eat a jellyfish. Yeah, it's really gross. <laughs> it's awful. Yeah. It's, so everyone it's no go imagine that. So well, Tish, yeah. you're drinking you're drinking your kombucha and it occurs to me that the kombucha is I would even describe it as hyper local. Is that mm-hmm. fair? It is like, entirely it's, fair. It's not within like a hundred miles. It's like within a hundred <laughs> steps of your, yeah. maybe even less. If that, I was going to say, if that, we live in a small house. So it's within a few steps of where I'm standing. Now I will say, I'm not exactly sure about the origins of the ingredients. And that's, that speaks well into the whole um, thing I'm learning about my six month um challenge for this year. So that's what we're talking about today, right? Uh, We, a few episodes ago, talked about your update with um, a social media fast. Today, I was going to do a little update on my six-month 100-mile radius fast, or what, like, to only do 100-mile radius. Um, And 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 when you say to only do, you mean only to buy, purchase, get product within 100 miles of where Mm -hmm. the pin drops on your house. 
Exactly. And so for me, that looks like roughly north of Waco to south of San Antonio. So and then with Austin all in between. So I will 100% admit that I live in a pretty decent 100 mile radius when it comes to sourcing good quality things. Yeah, Um, like if you lived in the middle of Kansas, you'd be screwed. (laughs) Exactly. Or Alaska or anywhere else. And also I had people do some follow up writing on my challenge. Like I, I, you know, found them on the internet. And some people were commenting about how like she clearly lives in Texas where it's all spread out because hundred mile radius is huge where we live. And it was like, I think it was London. And, you know, that would take up like half the country because it's small. So yeah, it's all within, it's all within a ratio and, you know, whatever the mathy terms are. So if I were to live in Alaska or in the middle of Kansas, it might be a 500 mile radius. So hundred mile radius just works for me. This isn't, you know, it's an art, not a science. Uh, and it's what you were saying earlier, though, speaks into what I've learned about the challenge of this and that it's nuanced, you know? So yeah, this kombucha was made in my kitchen. However, I'm not sure where the mint was from or the limes were mm. from or the tea is mm. from. We do our yeah. best. For example, this tea is an organic HEB brand. Like it's manu- it's packaged in San Antonio because that's where HEB's headquarters are. Um, and so that's local. But I'm sure the tea was probably from Sri Lanka or, you know, India or not. Lo- I'm just guessing. I could be wrong. I know tea can be grown here, but it's usually not. So it all gets into like we do what we can, but there's no way you could do this kind of challenge and be a purist. And I'm okay with that, really. It's it's been fine and um, rewarding and worth it. So tell me what you know as you've done this challenge. I mean, start with what's been the easiest thing, and then we're mm-hmm. going to go to the hardest thing. Yeah, uh, that's actually what I've been thinking about because we're more than halfway through now, right? Um, I've been doing this since January. And the thing that I'm finding is a lot of it has become habit now. Like it's sort of an autopilot thing. And I think the reason is because we, and I don't just mean we, my family, I mean, we as humans, we tend to kind of live on the same things. Like we tend to buy the same things. We tend to eat the same things. Just our habits are pretty well ingrained, even if we're not aware of it. So once you find the things that work for you and your people, you just rinse and repeat. And so uh, Kyle and I have pretty well established a habit of Saturday mornings. We go to the farmer's market. I get my two gallons of milk from the local farm that is selling there. I get some chicken, some whole chickens. I get some beef. I get some coffee. I, you know, we get our, some of our groceries or some of our staples. And then um, I know like, you know, cause that's on a Saturday on either Sunday evening or Monday morning, I will go to HEB and fill in the rest. And I do my best to get what's local. And of course, like I mentioned a few months ago, it took me forever to find, you know, the local, I use the example of tortilla chips, but copy and paste that with any other staple you get. Um, and it takes time to figure out which is the best or nearest or whatever version of that thing. But once you find it, you find it. You don't need to like research all the time. So I would say the easiest part for me so far has been the groceries. And Mm. um, so I I say that to encourage people that um, it feels like a daunting task. But once you have your your rhythm down and your go-to items, it's really not that hard. You may not have thought about this or it may not have occurred to you, but have you noticed with, you know, inflation, the the CPI report came out yesterday as we record this yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like, you know, showing an annualized 8.5% year over year 
<laughs> increase. And and it yeah. strikes me, um, you know, that every time I go to the store, I feel like I'm paying about 10% more than I used to. Have you noticed any correlation between buying locally and um, in price price increases or inflation? I have noticed a price increase, but not any more from what I can tell whether I prioritize local or not. I think there's mm. just a price increase over everything. And in fact, um, one thing that's at least helped me, quote, sleep at night, though I wouldn't be like wrestling literally at night about this, it's just more like this is one less thing, is whenever you do buy local, you don't have the whole shipping situation to contend with as much when you come, when it comes to making purchasing decisions. So the fact that I know the chicken was just from, you know, a couple miles away means that they didn't have to add in transportation to that price. So yeah, there's been a price increase, but not, not any more than if we were buying from big brand stores or big brands of mm. items, if that makes sense. So I think it's just an issue for all of us, no matter how we buy things right now. And it stinks for sure. Um, and it also, to me, uh, inflation has driven home more the whole staying local because of the cost of gas right now, like just as a person. And that leads me to like the part that's been a little bit more of a challenge, but not as hard as I as it was. And that's participating in the local kind of community of my life. So um I was never a huge like I hate driving. I don't know how you feel about driving, but it's not a favorite not pastime favorite. of mine. Yeah. At all. No. And so it's never been a thing for me to like just want to go on a drive. I don't mind the occasional road trip. That can be fun. But by and large, I like being near home. But the cost of gas has definitely driven home my desire even more to stay home. And so um, it's it's been easier than it was at the beginning to just not feel as big a need to like go do things. So as an example, um, we go on dates about once a week. And we really and truly just stick to nearby restaurants. Largely, we did that before, but we feel even more committed now to doing that because of like, yeah, I don't know. I just don't want to spend money if I can get the same value of enchiladas or a salad or a burger in my neighborhood. So yeah, 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 yeah which makes That's total all. sense. And I wish, I mean, I wish we were more walkable. We're really not, but um, I mean, the the one thing I to go back, I want to go back a little bit to to the inflation piece, but also mm -hmm. to that piece, which is the dining out and dining locally. Um, we, we've noticed the thing, you know, we're not as hardcore as you are, but we do buy certain things locally, like very intentionally we buy our meat locally mm -hmm. um, and have pretty much for years now, there are exceptions to that. We don't buy our cold cuts locally or whatever, but you know, our sure. beef, our chicken, our pork, um, and we're getting word now that all of those things are going up and those things were already more expensive because they're yeah. organic, right? So they were already more expensive than store-bought anyway. It was a choice that we made to support local farmers. And now we're like, we're staring down an additional 10% price increase on pretty much all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, you know, frustrating by the same token, I'm looking at the small farmer who's who's having to negotiate the same season of instability that all of us are and thinking like, don't right. they deserve 10% more money? Um, right. Even if they're not, you know, necessarily transporting it with, you know, hundreds of dollars more of gas or whatever. I mean, their grain costs are still more expensive. Fertilizer mm -hmm. costs to make sure that the, you know, grass is good is still more expensive, all those things. So, 
Um, but we've also seen that sort of translating into local, you know, the local restaurants that we love. I mean, I yeah. paid two bucks more today for a breakfast that I've been eating for the last, you know, month and a half, two months, you know, once a yeah. week. And I noticed, holy crap, I just paid $2 more. And I wondered how long I've been doing that. I hadn't even thought about it, you know, and I just looked yeah. down and I was like, yep, that's two bucks more. So, um, yep. and I'm starting to see that sort of everywhere. And, and that makes me wonder this, um, if that's the case, then is it long-term sustainable to do things within a hundred miles? If there are massive corporations that can do things at bigger scale, and so they're able to provide value um, to the consumer, to you and to me, um, and help us with our budgets, see, e.g., Walmart and McDonald's and Coca-Cola and all yeah. these people who don't seem to be passing the costs through mm -hmm. as much as the places that we would rather shop. So I guess what I'm asking you is a really, it is now a question of, of, of privilege. Do we have the privilege to, to, to shop these ways or, or, or how do you negotiate that? So I'm only going to speak for me. I'm not going to be prescriptive here, right? I'm not going to say listeners of the show, you need to do this and not do this because everybody's situation is different. Not only geography, like what we said at the beginning, but financially and your own particular family and your own preferences and allergies and a million different factors. So I, I really and truly only know mine. And this is how I approach just ideas of privilege in general, of which this is an example. And that's if I can, because of privilege, then that's even all the more reason I should if there, if it points to truth, beauty, and goodness. Like, for example, if it is a moral good that I spend $2 more per pound on local chicken because it does work in my budget. And if my, if I see a price increase because of inflation and I'm torn between, okay, does this mean we eat one more meatless meal a week mm. or buying um, more factory farmed chicken that was shipped across the country? If I am in a position to support my local farmer because it's a moral good and it, because it is a high value of mine, then I am willing to have one more meatless meal a week in order to mm -hmm. keep buying from my farmer and supporting that industry because we vote with our dollars mm -hmm. and kind of more, more the point is um, what inconveniences are we willing to pay for a more beautiful life and mm. copy and paste that idea for anything about like how you spend your time, um, whether you have a smartphone or not, whether you choose to have two cars or not, whether you take a particular job or not, there's, Every single choice we make has pros and cons. It's not like, yeah. let's pick the one that has zero cons. It's all a matter of like trade-offs. And so to me, it's about um, what inconveniences am I willing to deal with? In this case, the inconvenience is like two more dollars per pound of chicken. Right. Um, but somebody else, that might not be something that they're willing to pay. And that's that's between them and their maker and not between me and them. And who am I to judge? Because I have my own version of McDonald's or, you know what I mean? Like if I choose to buy locally, that doesn't mean I'm not doing something else that someone else would 
consider anathema for their own priorities. That's that's my take on things like privilege and in specificity of this idea. Yeah. So another thing it makes me think of is, is there in your life, and I mean, I think I know the answer to this because I've known you for years, but, um, but is there, is there any philosophy at play that sounds something like, you know, less, but better, or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in other words, you may not, you may not consume as much from a quantity perspective, and I'm not just talking about food. Right. Right. I'm talking about clothing. I'm talking about knickknacks, whatever, uh, housing, size housing, um, that you would intentionally consume less. Um, and that the trade off there from a budget perspective would be okay, well, because I'm consuming less, that means that I can buy a little bit better, a little bit more local, a little bit higher quality. Yeah. And honestly, this gets into not to do a shameless plug, but this gets into why I'm such a big believer of a rule of life. Because once you create your rule of life, you kind of realize what your personal priorities are, because there's so many good things out there. Um, Kind of this idea of essentialism, we have to be able to say no to 99% of things so we can say yes to the 1%. Once you know what your 1% is, then you can sort of make a lifestyle design Um, that aligns with that. So an easy example for me is Kyle and I are choosing to raise our family in a pretty small house and it's pretty old. And so there's a million things that need fixing. It's definitely a fixer upper. We couldn't afford to live in this area without buying a fixer upper. And compared to our kids' friends, our house is pretty, it's got a pretty small footprint. We are willing to pay that price to live in a walkable neighborhood, to live in an old historic walkable neighborhood where um, we can do all those other things like walk to our date nights, walk to the library, walk to the park, walk to, I mean, we walk to a lot of our life. Um, That's the price I'm willing to pay. So we deal with like a janky house and one bathroom for five people, but, and that doesn't make me a better person. I, I want to make yeah. sure the listeners hear that. I'm not saying choiceful. this to be holier than thou. It, this is just my choice. This, this is yeah. our choice. And I'll tell you, a lot of our friends kind of side-eye it, not because they're bad people, but because they have different priorities. Here's a, an example I like to give a lot. Do you remember Sarah Harmeyer? She went – Yeah. I, I can't remember. No, she went to Italy the second trip um, after our trip. Uh, yes. Us Oxenriders and Haynes. Okay. So Sarah Harmeyer, she lives up in Dallas. Great gal. Lover did bits. Um, she lives in a small house as well, but she has like thousands of people over for dinner all year long. Like I, I can't remember what her number was. And of course this is pre pandemic, but last I, I heard it was something like 2000 people a year. She loves hosting. She loves having large gatherings in her home. And so for her, it makes sense to have a lot of plates, a lot of serving dishes, Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't make her not a minimalist quote. Uh, it makes her aligned with her priorities. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't make sense for me to have a hundred plates because I don't have that many people over, but hospitality is a high value of her. So she's willing to have a lot of those things, um, and maybe less of something else. And so to me, that's an example of just, you know, you can't just look at, does this person have three t-shirts? Therefore they're a minimalist. It all has to do with like what matters to us. And so everybody's different in a good way. I'm glad that we're all given different priorities and values. Otherwise, I mean, that'd be really boring if we all had the same 
definition of what mattered, you know? It it would be really boring. By the same same <laughs> token, I mean, I think what you're talking about is 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 being choiceful, making decisions that align with who you are and what your values are. And I think we do live in a society in which so often society makes those decisions for us. We get in the yeah. stream, we get in the flow and the current, and that current just sort of carries us along and. Um, and, and we don't stop to think like, hey, is what I'm doing aligning with my values? Is where I'm going, what I'm reading, uh, what I'm listening to, what I'm purchasing, what I'm eating? Does this align with my values? Um, I have no problem, zero problem. In fact, I'll share an example. I, you know, if, if, you're, if your values are aligned, have d- aligned with who you say you are and they're not my values, I have no problem with that, like if it's honest. So there's a... Um, a particular uh, YouTube channel that I watch. It's a financial YouTube channel. And um, the guys are real jackasses. Yeah, I said it. Um, but but they actually like, they know it, they own it. And I'm okay with it. I'm not using it to teach yeah. my kids how to become better men or, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. listening to them for, you know, advice on how to perform out in the world. But one of those guys was talking And he said, you know, in his mind, it's not about whether he uh, will become a billionaire, but when. And these are older guys. I mean, these are guys that are, you know, I say older. They're not, they're not, you know, 20 year olds betting on Bitcoin. I mean, these are guys who run businesses and do good things and whatever. Yeah. I mean, he was talking about, you know, um, how he spends money. He's the son of an immigrant. And he was just saying, like, I don't spend a lot of money. You know, I have a 5,000 square foot house and I have a watch collection and I have really nice cars, but otherwise that's kind of what I spend my money on. I don't go out to eat in fancy places. Mm-hmm. I don't dress this certain way. I don't blah, blah, blah. And I looked at his life and I'm like, man, you know, the arrogance of when will I be a billionaire? You know, <laughs> ugh, not my value. Um, mm-hmm. Having more than one watch, much less more than one Rolex, ugh, not my value. You know, like a 5,000 square foot house, not my value. Um, but when I look at this guy and I listen to his life and I hear him talk about what it was like to grow up as a poor immigrant kid, you know, from Iraq and to see his dad struggle and become a doctor and learn the language and do all these things. And I look at him, I'm like, okay, he likes nice things. He wants to have a few nice things. He still lives fairly frugally for how much he's, you know, for his net worth. Um, I don't necessarily want to hang out with him, but I can still look at him as a human and say, you have some wonderful things to offer the world, even though I disagree with you on certain things, or even though I don't, you know, my values don't align with yours. Um, and, and there's this sense, and, and this is not exactly what you're talking about, but it could be applied to your challenge as well. And it can actually, frankly, it could be applied to my challenge, any challenge where you're kind yeah. of doing something hard. But there's this sense in the minimalist community um, that I'm less familiar with than you are. I'm vaguely familiar with it, where it's kind of like, you know, I have my capsule wardrobe, my studio apartment, my skateboard, and my dumb phone, and right. I'm better than you. Right. And and that sense is just stupid. It is. And that's one of the reasons I got out of that space. Not because, I mean, there that, that wasn't the chief reason, but that was one of the side benefits to moving on from writing about uh, minimalism or simple living is I just did not want to be in this backward race I didn't sign up for of like who can live with the least amount of items and then 
brag about it and judge others for having more <laughs> or just having yeah. different choices. And, um, and, you know, I don't want to judge them in return, but I think it's really important for people to hear that phrase, good for them, not for me, a lot when it comes to stuff like minimalism and things like a hundred mile radius, um, that this is in no way meant to be a prescription for how everyone should live. I do think the prescription is consider your values. Um, take the time to not live on autopilot, which is what you said. And so think about like what actually matters to you because we do vote with our dollars and we do vote with our choices, you know? So um, like it or not, your actions are telling the world and telling yourself what matters to you. And um, I think Sister Helen Prejean, the woman who um, is a big anti-death penalty advocate, um, who's big on Twitter, she talks about, uh, she says something like, I watch my actions to know what I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the application here. It's not yeah. so much there are five steps to living a beautiful life. It's watch your actions because those are telling you what actually matters to you. And yeah. if you think, wait, no, they don't line up, then that's that's the time to course correct. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. So to, to me, I mean, I think to me, that's the takeaway from both your challenge and my challenge. I mean, I think that there mm -hmm. are some real problems, I mean, you know, with social media, hence my challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that there are some things I'm going to keep, you know, as I walk away from my challenge, which I'm sure will update, you know, when the six month span mm -hmm. is over and, and there are yep. some things I'm going to not keep. I mean, there are some ways I'm going to go, you know, go back. Um, and I'm sure that'll be the same for you. I'm sure that there are some mm -hmm. practices you'll keep and some that you'll say like, no, this isn't really for me. And, 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 and that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. so long as it aligns with your values. And in fact, I mean, I kind of think that's what life is all about. It's about tinkering, experimenting, playing around with what you do and don't do and seeing what fits and then adopting what fits and getting rid of the rest. And I, I think yeah. if you're not doing that, if you're uh, content to go with the flow and follow the people around you, because for whatever reason, uh, the people around you have that much influence in your life, I think you're m missing out on a really beautiful part of living. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think to couple with that, just the idea of done being better than perfect. Um, you know, I think when people start off the year with challenges or goals uh, let's say to run every day and then they miss a day, they just say, oh, well, screw it. I'm going to just sit on the couch the rest of the year. Um, obviously that's hyperbolic, but we tend to sometimes do that. And so when I think of this hundred mile radius idea, um, you've mentioned how you've ha had to hop on Instagram just a little bit to check some stuff. I think that's the key here is as you tinker, give yourself a lot of grace. You know, if it's not a, a sin issue, then it's okay if you, you know, like, honestly, I had to order something online not too long ago because we legitimately needed it and couldn't find it here. It's okay. Not a big deal. That's yeah. how life just has, that's how this has to work. And so if you are an idealist and a purist about this, it's, you're just going to end up frustrating yourself. Um, and so I think that's, that is a key to implementing these lifelong habits because yeah, when these six months are up, I don't know if that much is going to change for me because I already, we were living pretty locally, but I think some of the habits and practices I've learned, um, it, it's more of like a confirmation yet that these things are worth it. That whole exchange of an inconvenience for a beautiful life. This is just what matters to me. And yeah. um, I do think 
in a few months, I want to reflect on some of the challenges, why they were challenges, and also why some of the things weren't as hard as I thought they would be. And one big reason that I'll probably just talk about when we talk about this again, so I'll just leave it more as a teaser, is that um, the fact that I have an additional job offline has been a huge key that I that has surprised me. I wouldn't think that something like just what I do for work mattered, but um, I have spent a good decade just being on the internet as my main job. And when I just could not handle that anymore and took another local type of work, it helped me become so much more local. And mm. so perhaps that's a little just pin for someone to reflect mm. on by the next time we think about not so much you have to work in your immediate sphere and it's bad to have a job you know, via the internet or remotely. That's not what I'm saying. Just consider if perhaps if there's like an incongruence in your life, it's because of where you're having to spend a good chunk of your energy. Mm. I had to spend a lot of my energy out there, you know, in the digital yeah. space. And now that I don't have that anymore, it's a lot easier to be local and, um, I I wouldn't have it any other way. And that's been most surprising to me. So I love it. I love it. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that's good. So that's our that's our update. <laughs> that's our uh waxing uh-huh. philosophically on local living. Um, but also just on trying new things, on that's right. stretching out, seeing what aligns with your values, practicing mm-hmm. it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Cool, let it go. Totally fine. That's right. But don't yeah. just get into the slipstream and ride it all the way home with the rest of the fish. Cause that's just boring. That's boring. Don't do it. It's boring. It's boring and it's not really how we're made to live. So that's yeah. right. So that's right. Tish, tell me what's yeah. one thing that you are doing that is perhaps outside of the slipstream that is bringing more <laughs> truth, goodness, or beauty to your life. It's a surprising thing because it's not beautiful on the surface, but it points to beauty because it's true and it's good. Uh, Because it's true, it points to goodness, which points to beauty. That's all I'm going to say. I'm reading 1984 by George Orwell with my students. I almost started that two two weeks ago. Holy crap. We're on the same wavelength, but I got three pages in and I was like, I've already read this three times. Yes. Well, that's exactly why I hesitated to read it because I've already read it. And a lot of times when I've, uh, when I'm teaching a classic with a student and I know pretty well, I want to just read my own thing. But I decided, you know, it's been a few years since I've read this. I'm going to dive in and uh, I'm not going to be that tinfoil hat, like old man yells at cloud kind of person. But boy, if it doesn't reflect a lot of things going on in our current world, I think George Orwell was rather prophetic, if not, what, 40 years too late or something or, you know, whatever. It's not a literal fulfillment of prophecy, but he is hinting at a lot of things, ideas that have since seemed a lot more normal um, since the dawn of a lot of our technology. So it is, I think, required reading if you've never read it. If you have read it, but it's been a couple decades, consider reading it again because our world has changed and you have matured as a person. And uh, that's been my case. I have grown in wisdom. And so when I'm looking at these teenagers and, you know, am concerned that I don't come across like a tin foil hat wearing person, um, it's all I can do to tell them like, please get off TikTok. Haven't you read 1984? <laughs> but uh, it's been really good. I, I, I'm glad to be rereading 1984 right now, even though it's pretty bleak and pretty depressing and I'm going to have to chase it with something lovely. Um, yeah. 
That's well, I mean, to that point, the last time I read 1984, I was pretty much drunk the whole time. So, I mean, ah, you know, I mean, that was years ago. Those those were the good days, the good old days of (laughs) drowning my sorrows in 1984. Well, Um, it might be worth a reread then because it is. It is reading it sober is pretty sobering. Well, I mean, I've read it. I read it sober in high school, and then I read it sober again in law school, and then I read it drunk uh, years later, and I will tell you, it was much better drunk. Um, <laughs> that's kind of a joke, but sort of also not. Uh, right. But anyway, yeah, that I'd love to hear your takeaways. Perhaps we can do a whole show on your takeaways of 1984. I think it would mm-hmm. be fantastic and fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I would love to do that. I want to do that more in general on our chats. Like, let's talk about good books specifically. I like it. You know. Yeah. All right. How about you? What's one thing right now adding beauty, goodness, truth to your days? So I have been thinking a lot about story development. And and in part, I've been thinking about story development because of the work that we do, um, in part because of the work I do in branding, in part because of the work I do as an attorney uh, and a writer. So in those three veins, attorney, writer, branding, and marketing, you know, you're essentially just telling stories in all of those yeah. ways. It, there's different reasons for telling the stories, different rhetorical devices you might use. But I've been thinking particularly about storytelling um, in fiction. And yeah. so a friend gave me a book a while back. Um, it's called The Science of Storytelling by Will Storer. Um, yeah. It is a book that I just kind of put off reading because I really I, I detest you want to hear my pet peeve? The thing that I hate may be worse than anything else. Sure. I hate writing on writing. Hmm. Like yeah, craft about craft. I, it just <laughs> ugh, it just drives me yeah. bonkers. I, I make some sure. exceptions. I love Stephen King's on writing, of course. Yep. Yep. Um, but like, I don't want to read Annie Dillard tell me how to write. I want to read Annie Dillard, or yeah, I want to read right. Marilyn Robinson tell me how to write. I want want to read Marilyn Robinson. So um, for the most part, and maybe that says something, I think I would rather read Stephen King on writing than read any of Stephen King's writing. So maybe same. hmm, Yeah. Maybe there's something there anyway. And I, I don't hate Stephen King. I like a good bit of Stephen King, but in any event, um, I detest that kind of writing. So I've been putting this book off, but I picked it up uh, last week. I'm about halfway through it. And Hmm. You know, it's just, it's really interesting to think about the reason why characters work. Um, mm. And and he does a really good job in this book of, of talking about how to write tension, but then also how to move from, you know, sort of the, the X plus Y equals Z plot driven narratives to like more complex character driven stuff, which is really what I like. Um, yeah. And to watch how uh, masters and to see how masters use um, internal tension and conflict and personality and psychology to really um, bring characters to life. And I've been thinking about that a lot because, as you know, I have written some fiction. I'm waiting to hear if anyone ever wants to do anything with it. Um, things feel tenuous at best right now. And I'm analyzing those characters and saying, like, have I, have I built in the right kinds of tension? And so mm-hmm. it's just really... Uh, timely read for me as I start thinking more and more about how to, how to write fiction. But also um, as I'm reading it, it's, it's really showing me like some of the mastery of the scriptures. Um, 
So even when mm. he talks about beginning with, there's a, a phrase that he used sort of like begin in the bang. So you begin at that moment of like, like the critical moment, the crucial moment, or a moment of sort of like cognitive dissonance, or you create like a gap uh, that needs to be answered. Yeah. And I've always said that the book of John was sort of my favorite gospel. And when I think about the book of John, like it completely follows all of his advice. It starts with an information mm. gap, it starts with a bang in an information gap, and then introduces you a character that you have no context for. And from mm. there builds this completely like this robust psychological profile of all these, you know, people saying these insane things in this crazy time. Um, and so even just like reading uh, John as a literary master through the lens of the science of storytelling by Will Storr has been fascinating. Hmm. That sounds really good. It reminds me of the media res idea, I suppose, right? Like start your story right in the middle, not at the beginning. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I don't know if you read Amor Tolls at all, but I have – I'm I'm with you on the writing on writing, but I read an interview on his just tips for writing or his best practices. And he talks about that. He'll write his whole story. He he wrote like Gentleman of Moscow and Lincoln Highway, a lot of good sweeping epic stories. And he says he'll write his whole thing and it's that crappy first draft, but then he'll lob off like the first three chapters because <laughs> he realized he just needed to get that out and tell himself the backstory and realize actually his chapter one is like his chapter three. So that's really interesting well, that. I could be completely screwing this story up, but I am 90% sure that Ernest Hemingway sent an early draft of The Sun Also Rises mm-hmm. um, over to – I can't remember who he sent it to now. Huh. But anyway, I'll, I'll remember. Oh, is it Gertrude Fitzgerald. Stein? Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. He sends, okay. It, okay. he sends it over to Fitzgerald. I think the story goes – and Fitzgerald said something to the extent of this is a masterpiece after the first 90 pages, cut it off, like cut them <laughs> off, like discard them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So essentially that's what happened. He starts literally in the middle of his book. And honestly, the, that era of writers, they were so good at that. Like Steinbeck, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, they are all good at starting in the media res. So that confirms that idea. And that maybe that's why we love those stories so much and why they – why they trigger such an an imagination in in their readers because we're we're allowed to fill in the blanks where we want to as readers. That's cool. Well, my most um, recent Substack piece that will go out mm-hmm. before this airs is actually about it's actually writing on writing. So I'm about to break okay. the thing that I hate the most. So. <laughs> Um, if you're well, reading that and listening to this and you can't quite get home on the cognitive disconnect, just understand that I understand the irony and we're all good. You know what? It's all right. We break our own rules all the time. I get it. <laughs> well, good. All right. Well, we will link to all these books in the show notes because we just mentioned some really good works. Uh, and as always, it's time to wrap this up. So you can find this episode as well as all episodes at A Drink with a Friend. If you like the show and what we're doing here, please help keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks. A lot of y'all have been doing that lately, and that is super duper encouraging for us because at the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint, you can really play a big part, and we really appreciate it. So look for the show notes, uh, the link in the show notes this episode or again at a drink with a friend.com. So you can find me and my work mostly at tishoxenwriter.com or you can find my Substack newsletter. Seth, where can people find you? They can find me at sethhaines.substack.com. All right. 
Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth Haynes, and we will be back here at the table with you soon. Have a good, good Friday, and thank you for listening. Thank you.